1871, the Great Chicago Fire devastated the whole city and virtually left Horatio Spafford with nothing. It was almost the hardest trial of his life, but not the hardest. Two years later, in 1873, he, his wife, Anna, and his four daughters were to set sail for England. But at the last minute, Horatio had to stay behind a day or two on business, so he sent Anna and his four daughters ahead on a ship. And just as they were approaching England, the ship that Anna and his four daughters were on collided with another ship and sank. And all four of his daughters died, and his wife barely survived. Horatio heard of the accident and sent a telegram to his wife, who was saved but completely alone. He got on another ship to be with his wife, and as he passed over the same route and passed the spot where the first ship had gone down, he wrote these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. How can he say that? How is it possible to say that? Your daughters have drowned. The most precious people in your life are gone, and yet it's well with your soul? How could that be? Well, that's a question you could also ask David in this psalm, and that's a question that we'll seek to answer, the, uh, we'll seek to answer this evening. Now, there are many gems to be mined from this psalm. We won't have time for all of them now, and we'll look at it verse by verse, and some verses we'll look at in much more detail than others. Now, this is a psalm written by David. We don't know exactly at what point in his life this is, but we do know from verse 10 especially that he's facing a great danger of some sort that could easily result in his death. Now, it's so easy to say that and skip over it. But actually think on that for a moment. David was a man who at points in his life, he was on the run from armies and kings his enemies who would gather all of their resources to try and hunt him down and end his life. David was a man who faced a kind of anxiousness and threat and peril and worry and grief that me and you probably will never face. And yet when we read the psalm, instead of seeing a man in despair and sorrow and worry, we see a man that has a calm courageous faith in God. And how can that be? You say, how is it possible, David, to face such a heartbreaking danger, whatever this is, a struggle, and yet respond the way you do in this psalm? And as we face this new year, maybe you're going through something that is difficult and you'd really like to know how or even if this is possible, to face trials with courage and even joy? How can that be? Well, let's read this psalm and find out. Verse 1. 
David says, preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. David's cry to God is for God to preserve him in the midst of the struggle that he's facing. He's saying, preserve me, God, protect me as I go through the middle of this trial. Defend me, O God. Now, this is a very familiar, typical kind of psalm verse. You might find this kind of verse in a daily reading book or on your Bible app. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. And we come across verses like this quite a lot through the Psalms. And a lot of Psalms open the way that this one does. And because we're so familiar with verses like this, we can so often skip over it and think, I know what he's saying. He's just asking God to help him. Okay, now what does the rest of the Psalm say? But that's not all David says. Look at verse 1. He doesn't just say, preserve me, O God. Notice that word for. Preserve me for in you I put my trust. What is David saying here? He's not simply asking God to help him and then sitting around doing nothing, waiting for God to do something. But he's actively putting his trust in God to do it. He's actively choosing God as his strength. He's saying, of all the things that I could trust in this life, God, you are the one I'm trusting. I'm setting my mind upon you. I'm setting my attention upon you. You're the one that I'm running to straight away. I don't go anywhere else. And so because I'm choosing you as my fortress, would you make yourself a fortress to me and preserve me, God? He's putting his trust in the Lord. So maybe you're thinking, okay, what does it mean to put your trust in God in that way? What does that look like? Well, it means saying what David says in verse 2. Oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, meaning God, you are my Lord, meaning master or ruler. My goodness is nothing apart from you. Putting your trust in God is saying, God, you are my Lord. You are my master, my sovereign. The one over my life isn't me, it's you. You're the one who decides what happens to me. Now, <laughs> that's not an easy thing to say. Because the natural inclination of our soul is to say, I am my Lord. It's not to say, God is my Lord. It's to say, I know what's best for me. And the God of my life is me. And we might not say that with our lips, but does our heart say that? Do our actions and our attitudes say that? That we are our own God? Well, David is a man who's fought and trained his heart, his attitude, his soul into this position, this direction which points not to himself, but to God. He doesn't think of himself as Lord or as any other power as Lord over him, but he says, no, God is my Lord. And it's not said reluctantly or grudgingly, it's said joyfully. God 
is my Lord. What better place could there be, is what David is saying. Do you realize that this evening? That there is no better place for you to be than that position where you say, God is my Lord. And so in the opening of this psalm, David isn't merely asking God for help. He does do that. But he's also making his heart a heart that points to God and trusts in him for help above all things. You see, there's a great difference there. Anyone can ask God for help. Anyone can pray, preserve me, God, but not everyone can follow that up with, preserve me for I put my trust in you. Preserve me, God, because I'm looking to you as the only one who can and will preserve me. One is a heart of selfish desperation. Preserve me. One is a heart of selfless devotion because you are my Lord. I wonder which is your heart? Do you pray and cry out to God just to fix the things in your life that you want fixing because in reality you are the Lord of your life? Or do you cry out to God because your soul has decided he's my Lord? Now still in verse 2, David not only says God, you are in charge of my life. That is your rightful position. But he also says, I'm not in a position to do that. He says, I'd do a terrible job if I were in charge. I could never be worthy of being in that place. You are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. He says, I have no goodness of myself unless God is in it. You see, the human soul is dead without God. You are completely bent inwards, pointing all your love and attention towards yourself until God straightens you out and points you towards him. That's what being born again means. That's what it is to be saved. And how does that happen to someone? Well, we'll consider that more in verse 11. But do you recognize this of yourself? My goodness is nothing before God and all my sin is so great. And if you aren't a Christian here this evening, then this verse should cause you to think long and hard about your position before God. But if you are a Christian, do you know that this verse can be an encouragement to you? How? Well, the reason David could have such bold confidence in God in the face of trials was not because he was great in any way. We can so easily almost venerate or deify these people in the Bible. We see David and Abraham and Jacob and Moses and lift them up as these great people. And yet David's saying, there's no goodness in me. Maybe you're facing a trial like David was, but you think, you know, having this kind of confidence in God that David has is completely out of my reach because David was the spiritual giant and I could never be like that. He was so much greater than I am. And yet David says, no, my greatness is nothing without God working something great in me. 
And David's goodness was nothing apart from God. He was just as broken and weak and as sinful as you or I, probably even more so. Now, here's a very simple illustration of what that looks like. Here, I have two cups. One's quite small, not very impressive looking. One's bigger, nice sculpted sides. Now, imagine one cup were to move over to a stream of water that would flow endlessly and would never stop. And this cup makes his way over to the water and he's filled up by the water. And now the empty cup says to the full cup, oh, what a great cup of water you are. Look at you, you hold water so much greater than I do. You know, your capacity for holding it is clearly just a great gift. I don't think I could ever hold water the way that you do. But the full cup says, what are you talking about? You can hold water just as well as I can. And the empty cup replies, no, you're bigger than me. You're stronger than me. You have beautiful sculpted sides that I don't have. You're much better at holding water than I am. And the full cup replies, no, it doesn't matter what I'm like. The same water that I hold is available to you. There's an endless stream right there. And the empty cup says, no, I just don't think I was made to hold water like you do. You know, my friend, you may be able to think of a hundred ways that you think David was a better believer than you, but you can hold the same confidence in God that David did, the same unashamed boldness in God that David did, the same unwavering trust in God that David did, and the same all-surpassing joy in God that David did. How? Because if there are any of those good things in David, they aren't because of him. His goodness is of God. And that same endless stream of water that was available to David is still available to you and me today. It's right here in the Bible that never changes. It's right here within you if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. So it all comes down to this. Will you seek it? Will you seek it? Having this confidence and boldness doesn't come automatically. It has to be sought after and fought for. So will you take time in God's word and in prayer? Because then you will be able to join David in saying, I put my trust in you, God, for you are my Lord. Now, verse three, David says, as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, put yourself in David's position for a moment. You're perhaps facing a threat that could mean your life is at stake from an enemy that is great and powerful and there's a strong chance that you could die. But, hey, you're the king of a great powerful nation. And in that moment of peril, who would you turn to? You might think warriors, soldiers, kings, 
powerful allies who can come to my aid and save me. They would be the excellent ones to me. They'd be the people who I delight in because they could rescue me. But that's not what David says. The people David finds most joy in aren't those who might be able to fight with him. They're the people who can pray with him. The people David finds most joy in aren't those who are able to strengthen his position physically, but strengthen his position spiritually. And so David says, out of all the allies and friends that I have, these are the excellent ones to me. Those who delight in God are my delight. Those who treasure God above all things. Those who have seen and heard and understood all that God is and all that God has done and all that God has promised to do. These are the people who give their time and their resources and their lives to serve him. These people are my delight. And I delight to be around these people because when I'm around them, I see glimpses of God's glory through them as he works his great goodness in them so that their light can shine before men. I wonder, can you say the same of your Christian friends here? Do people say the same of you? See, God has not designed us as Christians to live in isolation. That's the whole meaning behind the church. The word literally means assembly, a gathered people. We are to stir one another up. We're to build up and encourage and bear burdens and pray for one another, helping each other, no matter how difficult the path is we may be facing, help each other to keep walking and keep reminding one another of God who has laid out our steps before we even put a foot in them. Now, maybe you're someone who would find most joy and comfort and peace from strong allies from other nations rather than the people of God. So let me share a question from pastor and author John Piper. Now, this question has stuck with me. I know it off by heart. I don't even have to look because it's stuck in my mind so well. He says, why would it be that you, a professing, a professing believer, would find more joy in people who find no joy in the thing that is your primary joy? I'll say that again. Why would it be that you, a professing Christian, would find more joy in people who find no joy in the thing that is your primary joy. You see, for David, those who delight in God are the excellent ones to him. But on the other hand, there are those who delight in other things. Verse 4, he says, Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after chase after, run after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. Their sorrows shall be multiplied. Everyone in this world faces sorrows. And everyone in this world runs to something to help them deal with those sorrows. Now, those who run towards another God 
their sorrows, David says, are just going to be worse than they were before. Because they're running to something to help them flee destruction, but they don't see the very thing they're running to is destruction itself. But David's heart is one that's firm and loyal because he knows that our God isn't like a wooden idol who needs to be carried and sustained and taken care of, but rather our God is the one who carries, sustains and takes care of us. And so David says, of all the things, of all these gods, of all these idols that I could run to and put my trust in, I'm choosing to put my trust in the one true God. When I need a stronghold and a fortress that I can run to, I'm not going to turn anywhere else. I'm turning to this God, the God of Abraham. I'm thinking and reminding myself of the God of Moses. These other gods, these lesser things, these so-called fortresses, I'm going to stay as far away from them as I can. I'm not even going to speak their names. Now, is that your attitude towards sinful things? To turn as far away as you can from them? Let me ask you, is your Christian life costing you something? It should. One thing it should cost all of us daily is our desires for sin. Because let's not fool ourselves. Sin is pleasurable. The law of sin is strong. But Jesus says, deny yourself. Deny your desires for sin for something greater. I'm sure if you went to the doctors and they told you, that suddenly you've developed this severe allergic reaction to chocolate, that you would give it up straight away because you know, you see the danger that it could cause. You see and you understand the peril and yet you can easily deny your love of chocolate for something greater, your life. And Jesus says, deny your desires for sin as pleasurable as they may be here, for something far greater. And so, as the hymn says, you turn your eyes upon Jesus. You look full at his wonderful face and the things of earth then grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And you'll say to yourself, I know that these sinful things want to pull me in, but I know that they're worthless and evil and so I'm not even going to pay them my attention because I already have the true God why would I run anywhere else and that is the heart that David has verse 5 and 6 and we'll start moving more quickly through some of these verses verse 5 oh Lord you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup you maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Now remind yourself again of who David is. He's the king of Israel. He has pretty much everything on earth that you could desire. And yet 
the inheritance that David has his eyes on isn't his wealth, his people, his status, but it's God. You see, Christian, you and I hold something more precious and more valuable than anything in this world could afford. More precious than wealth, more precious than relationships, more precious than status. You hold a knowledge of God. You hold a relationship with your father and you as his redeemed child. And that far surpasses anything you could ever hold on this earth. I wonder, do you believe that? And do you act like that? A lot of the time, I don't. And why is that? Because my eyes aren't set on the place they're meant to be. My heart is gripped by the things it should be gripped by. And yet David reminds himself of these things. He allows his heart to be gripped by it. And so he could stare death in the face knowing I have no fear. Why? Because God is my inheritance. God is on my side. He maintains my lot. Now, what does David mean in verse 6? That the lines have fallen to him in pleasant places. Does he mean his circumstances? No, because we know that he's facing death, which is anything but pleasant. He's not talking about his circumstances, but rather his position. See, circumstances change and waver, but your position before God never does. David says, you can change all my circumstances. You can rip from under my feet everything that I hold dear, and yet I will still stand firm. Why? Because his inheritance, his portion, his delight is not found in any of those things. It's found where? In God. And God alone. Therefore, David says, verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. And my heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I will bless the Lord, he says. I will praise the Lord. He has taught me good things from his word. The counsel of the Bible is so sweet and wise and good. And you see, the more you know God, the more you spend time with him, the more you become like him. Because what you're drawn to is what you're conformed to. That's true of everything in life. If you're drawn to sin and sinfulness, then what you become is sinfulness. And yet if you're a person who allows himself to be drawn to God, drawn to righteousness and goodness, then what you become is more like Christ. The things that you're drawn to are the things that you end up being conformed to. And so if you gaze upon God and spend time in his word, then your heart will start to look like his heart and your desires look like his desires. And so David says here, my heart, which has been shaped and molded and guided and corrected by God has become wise and will instruct me in the way I should go and think and act in the night seasons. In the night seasons, the times when it's most difficult 
when it feels like all hope is gone, when you become sick, or when relationships break down, or you're persecuted for your faith, when your father is battling bowel cancer, or when your wife or mother is diagnosed with cancer, when your mother is diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, when your husband dies, when your four daughters drown, what do you do at those times? You say, preserve me, God, for in you I put my trust. Bring eternal good from these temporary trials, O oh God, because in you I put my trust. And in those times, that's when God's word and God's counsel become so sweet. And that's when your heart instructs you. And yet all your wisdom and goodness isn't from you. It's of God. Because there's no goodness in me apart from him. Does this warm your heart? I hope it does. Verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. What does it mean to set the Lord always before you? Well, it's to do what David has done all throughout this psalm. So back in verses 1 and 2, David sees his problem. He sees the thing that he needs preservation from. And then he has a decision to make. What's he going to do? Where's he going to put his trust? This is, the, this is a decision that you and I make every time we face something hard. Consciously or unconsciously, you make this decision all the time. Where am I going to run? What am I going to turn to? What, is, what are you going to make your fortress? And David recognizes straight away, it can't be me. My goodness is nothing apart from God. I'd be a fool to put any trust in myself. So then where does he turn? Well, he looks over here and he sees these foolish people who turn to another God and says, that's futile. I could never take their names upon my lips. I'm not going to give that any of my attention. And yet he turns this way and sees the excellent ones. And he finds something delightful in them. He sees a glimpse of God's glory in them, but he knows that it's nothing because of them. He knows that no one has goodness apart from God. And so he's led to God. He begins by crying out to God for help, but then doesn't just stop and wait for a peaceful feeling to come over him. What does he do? He declares who God is to him. He declares what God has done for him. All the good things that God is and has done and continues to do, David declares it and preaches it to himself and reminds himself of it. That's what it is to set the Lord always before you. He turns to God and says from the depth of his soul, you are my Lord. You are my fortress. You are at my right hand and therefore I shall not be moved. I wonder what is at your right hand? Right now, what is 
the first thing you go to as a support? What do you cling to and lean on? What's your first port of call? Is it your family? Is it your friends? Is it your job or is it some secret sin? If it is one of those things or something else, then for you, this verse reads, I have set my family always before me. Because they are at my right hand, I will always be moved. I will forever be shaken. Why is that? Now, I realize I say this all the time, but I need reminding of it all the time. The strength of your rock determines the strength of your joy. People say that things are their rock all the time. Oh, he's my rock. I wouldn't have got through that without her. She's my rock. The strength of your rock determines the strength of your joy. See, if your rock is weak, then your hope and your joy is going to be weak. If your family, your friends, are possessions of your rock, that's a weak rock because they're fleeting and fading and changeable. And so when you lean on them and try and find hope from them, then your hope and your joy become just as fleeting and fading and changeable as they are. But if your rock is strong, then your hope and your joy is going to be strong. If your rock is eternal and unshaking and unwavering and faithful, then your joy will be the same. And the only one who is like that is God. Only when God is at your right hand, only when he is your source of strength and life and joy and peace, will you be able to say, the fiercest storm may rage against me, sorrows like sea billows may crash against me, and yet I stand firm. I shall not be moved. And so as we move into this new year, when troubles inevitably come against you, how are you going to react? What are you going to do? Where are you going to run? See, David is able to face his tribulation, even face his own death, perhaps. Yes, with fear, but having his fear overcome by something greater, knowing God. And so what is the result of all that? Verse 9, therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. Therefore, because of these things, David's saying, my heart is glad. Where does your gladness come from? What is the thing that makes you glad? You see, David has a firm gladness an everlasting rest and an unwavering hope because he has made God his strength and his trust. They can't be found anywhere else. Verse 10, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, meaning the grave or death. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So all those things you might turn to, family, friends, possessions, job, status, they're like the broken cisterns that Jeremiah writes of in Jeremiah chapter 2. Broken 
water tanks that hold no water. They just leak. We try and find our life in these things, and yet they leak more than you put in. But David speaks of fullness of joy, which is forevermore. You can't get fuller and longer lasting than that. You can't picture or imagine something that is greater than what David is speaking of. The fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And they're only found in one place. Where? God. They are pleasures and joys that can be known and felt now, but will be abundantly multiplied when we see Christ face to face and we leave this earth. So the question then is, what, what is it that gives such an everlasting joy? And how do we get it? The answer to those two questions is the same. Jesus Christ. What is the joy? Jesus Christ. How do we get this joy? Jesus Christ. Let's see how Horatio Spafford puts it. His hymn, When Peace Like a River, also has these words. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. What assurance? That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. God has seen my wretched, worthless state and the wickedness of my heart, and yet instead of crushing me under the full weight of his anger against sin, He's turned that aside and has crushed his son instead of me. This is the joy of God. This is what Horatio looked to. What an unspeakable joy this is. This is the heavenly anchor that holds the soul firm even when the strongest storms are bashing against your soul, this anchor holds. He continues writing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. I love how he pauses there. My sin, pause. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. My friend, that is your greatest need. Your sin is like an anvil around your neck that will drag you to the depths of hell. And that's where you deserve to be. Sin is so great. That's where I deserve to be, and yet I'm not there. Why? I will never be there. Why? Because of Jesus Christ. My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole thing, is nailed to the cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. And even if you've heard this a thousand times before, 
let these words be fresh to you, that Jesus Christ died, died in your place so that you could have the free gift of heaven rather than the judgment of hell. And he rose from the dead and commands everyone to trust in him as their only salvation. Why? Because God is so good and God is so gracious. This is the God that David had his eyes fixed on. This is the God Horatio had his eyes fixed on. His four children were dead. And yet this is what gave him the strength and the reason to say, it is well with my soul. Because no matter how short and how fleeting our life is on earth, no matter what I suffer or what I lose, I have an inheritance that will never fade. I have eternal life granted to me by the holy God of the universe and the only one who has the power and the authority to condemn my soul to hell has said, condemned no more. So whom shall I fear? He is the very one who's secured my salvation. The one who should condemn me instead has made himself my strongest defense. Whom shall I fear? So you say, how is it possible, David, to face such danger and fear and yet respond the way you do in this psalm? You say, how is it possible, Horatio, to face such despair and such heartbreaking struggle and yet respond the way you do in your hymn? They both answer, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full at his wonderful face, his amazing love, his steadfast mercy, his enduring promises, his all-surpassing pleasures, and then the trials of this life, all the laws of sin will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We're going to sing Horatio Spafford's hymn to close our service, but before we do, let me read the words of another hymn to you. It's a hymn that I wrote after our faithful brother and long-standing deacon here, Chris Wilcock, died almost two years ago now. And I wrote it rather hastily over about a month and then sent it to the musicians, but it wasn't right. And so I reworked the melody and spent the last year on the lyrics. And maybe we'll get to sing it in the new year, who knows. It has the same message as our title this evening. Though I may sorrow, I'll always rejoice. So when trials hit you this new year, because they most certainly will, what will you do? Where will you turn? How can there ever be joy? Well, here are the words. Though I may sorrow, I'll always rejoice, knowing that your presence is near. 
by your strong arm, I can still have a voice to praise you when my troubles appear. When sorrows hound me like the raging waves, when fear confounds me as the billows roll, oh, yet my joy shall remain an unquenchable flame still burning in the depth of my soul. What can supply such unwavering joy, holding through my soul's darkest hour? The God whom I'd scorned as a rebel in sin has made himself my strength and high tower. What then can snatch me from your mighty hand? Can tribulation, illness, pain or death? No, none can steal me away. This my strength for today, great promises that always endure. Troubles surround me, yet I won't lose heart. Looking not to things of this life, I fix my eyes on my heavenly rest. Then hardest trials are made to be light. If all I love on earth should fade and die, I hold a treasure greater than my pain. The matchless beauty of Christ passes all in my life. So death to me is infinite gain. Bold I will sing of your marvelous grace, the sweetest of all songs to my ear. Sadness may sting with the bitterest taste, but your joy overcomes every fear. I stand in Christ, unshaking through the storms, whether they cease or still he bids them rage, with all surpassing delight, in this truth I abide. You are with me till the end of the age. And so your soul can sing, it is well, for now and all eternity. <laughs>